Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Lithe and listen, gentlemen, that be of freeboard blood. I shall you tell of a good ye man. His name was Robin Hood. Robin was a proud outlaw, whiles he walked on ground, so courteous an outlaws as he was one, was never none found. Robin stood in Burnersdale, and lended him to a tree, and by him stood little John, a good ye man was he. And also did God Scarlock and much the miller's son. There was none inch of his body, but it was worth a grum. That was Kevin Costner reading <laughs> A Jest of Robin Hood. I thought it was Sean Bean. <laughs> now it's Kevin Costner. Kevin Costner's a master of accents. Did you not know, Tom? <laughs> yeah. um, so, so that was written um, sometime between probably 1450 and 1500. And it's not the earliest but one of the earliest and probably the most important of all the ballads in which the story of Robin Hood first entered the English and then the world's imagination. Tom, are you a, are you a big Robin Hood fan? I love Robin Hood. I absolutely adore Robin Hood. Do I've you? Oh, that's books. good to hear. I've, I've watched all the TV shows. I've watched um, all the films. absolutely love him. And have you ever heard a, a Robin Hood reading as powerful and moving as that one? No, never. <laughs> No, it was. It, I think that was your best. I, so that I, was your yeah. I, I, no, it, because it felt that it came from the heart. It was an English yeoman. <laughs> yes, it was. It was. I mean, are you a, are you a Robin Hood fan? Robin Hood and King Arthur are the reasons I got interested in history when I was about four. I still I feel very very sentimental about Robin Hood because I had these Ladybird books about his adventures fighting Guy of Gisborne or whatever. Yeah. And um, I still have them. And actually, my son, when he went to his first World Book Day at his nursery, he went as Robin Hood. Oh, that's fantastic. I would have had you down as a, a bigger fan of Robin Hood than King Arthur, because you're on the side of the yeoman, aren't you? Yeah, I think fighting with staffs over streams is very yeah. much my the way I like <laughs> to see myself. <laughs> Yes. Though I fear well, I may now, I, before, I'm going to say it before you do, um, uh, I, f- I fear now if I was ca- a casting agency would see me would see me more as Friar Tuck. But Friar Tuck, <laughs> I mean, Friar Tuck is a dab hand with a staff, isn't he? He is. He is, of course. And he's I mean, a cunning all, man. They're all a dab hand with, yeah. with staffs. So Friar Tuck is, I, I think he's quite a, quite a smart fellow, actually. I'd, I'd happily play him. So, Dominic, you mentioned Kevin Costner there. Yeah. who apparently was meant to speak in an English accent, and the director heard his accent and said, no. <laughs> On Twitter, we had, there's no question that uh, Kevin Costner, Prince of Thieves, seems to be viewed as the worst and simultaneously the best film. That's the, interesting. It's because of canonical. The, it's become canonical, it has, hasn't it? So uh, Toad was, was Kevin Costner's American Robin Hood, the worst ever portrayal. Richard Slade, how did Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, walk from Dover to Northumberland in one day? Kerry Shields... <laughs> tips in and via Hadrian's wall. So the, the lack of geography in that, yeah. he comes back from the Crusades and he lands at Dover, goes to Hadrian's wall. But don't you remember, Tom, there's a bit of a theme here because we are not, we are going to skip over Russell Crowe's Robin Hood. That uh, Russell Crowe walked out of an interview with the BBC when they challenged his accent 
And Mark Lawson said, there's a little bit of Irish in there. There's a little bit of South Yorkshire. And Russell Crowe was outraged at this because he thought he'd been giving my, he'd been doing my accent. <laughs> he actually responded on Twitter as well, saying that, um, that his accent. Russell Crowe. Yes, had been care, not, not to us, obviously. <laughs> was uh, that was a while back when the film came out, but saying that it was, you know, he was a Yorkshireman who'd been in the Middle East for 20 years. And, <laughs> right. you know, that's what it was. It was the same attention to detail as your Liam Neeson. In other exactly. Words. <laughs> exactly. It was a kind of, yes, it was a cocktail of accents um anyway uh, the reason for mentioning uh, i think uh robin hood prince of thieves yeah right at the beginning is that in many ways it is canonical i think because it reproduces all the elements of the legend that that are you know have been reproduced in children's stories and so on as to be honest does the um the disney film as well in which robin hood is a fox and made Marion is literally a fox. <laughs> yeah, well, Peter Ustinov is um, Prince John, isn't he? And there's a is he Prince John? Yes, he is Prince John. The, and Sir Hiss Terry Thomas is Sir Hiss, yeah. who is his, a snake, yes. who is a yeah. psychic. <laughs> yeah, so that's an innovation. But all the sort of, I mean, we all know. I guess Robin Hood, Maid Marion, Little John, Friar Tuck, Will Scarlet, Much the Miller's Son, Alan uh, Dale, Alan Dale, Guy of Gisborne, Prince John, obviously the Sheriff of Nottingham, and a returning Sean Connery. Or yes. King Richard the Lionheart. In uh, Prince of Thieves, as in lots of other ones, Robin himself is a returning crusader. Yes, that's right. Which is a very interesting innovation in the story, as we shall discover it. So the elements of the story, he robs from the rich, he gives to the poor, he rides through a glen. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, Sherwood Forest. Yeah. The Sheriff. Yes, of course. Archery, a lot of archery. Archery, archery contests. Yeah. So all the, all that stuff. Oh, and also, of course, he is of noble birth. Well, that's really important that you said about being a yeoman. I mean, Robin Hood, well, uh, we will discuss yeomanry, but in the Costner and similar versions, he is absolutely not a yeoman. He is nobly born, isn't he? He is. So I I, I thought it would be interesting to look at the the oldest known ballad that mentions Robin Hood and go through and see what elements of it are being reproduced in prince of thieves and all that kind of stuff so this is robin hood and the and the monk is that the oldest uh so yeah so just to give people a sense so that these ballads are they're from fif- the 15th century aren't 15th they? These, century. Are, these are the first sort of written there are there are trace references to robin hoods in other sources but the ballads are the real well the early, so the earliest mention of robin hood as as a, a hero is in piers plowman the great medieval um, alliterative poem by William Langland from your neck of the woods, Dominic. Um, Midlands uh, poem. A Midlander. Yeah, a Midlander. Very good. Yeah, yeah a Morven Hills. Uh, and, and Robin Hood is mentioned in that. And the implication is that everyone is familiar with the stories of Robin Hood. Yes. But we don't have any earlier stories than, say, the early, the early 15th century. So I think this is Robin Hood and the Monk. It's 1420. Okay. So I'll go through and tell you the plot. It opens with a description of... Uh, the fair forest being very merry. So everything being merry yeah. is there right from the, the absolute beginning. Robin Hood is walking through the forest with little John. So he's there right from the beginning. Absolutely. So also um, is much the miller's son. So he's yeah. also part of the the fun. Elements that aren't there, but come in later. Robin has a, a, a deep devotion to the Virgin. He wants to go to Nottingham. So again, not, it, it's set in Nottingham. Yeah. And he wants to, to, to attend Mass and, and pay his devotion to the, to the Virgin. Kevin Costner didn't do that. No, he didn't. Uh, and he is absolutely, as you say, a yeoman. Little John and Robin Hood have a, have a kind of a wager. 
Little John wins it. Robin refuses to pay. So Robin and, and Little John kind of go differently. Robin goes into Nottingham. He goes to St. Mary's Church. He's kneeling before the cross and an evil monk spots him there and rushes off and tells on him to the Sheriff of Nottingham. So the Sheriff of Nottingham is there from the yeah. beginning. Men at arms come rushing in. They capture Robin. So that's another absolute theme, isn't it? I mean, that's in the, the, that's in the Walt Disney film. Yes. It's in the Doctor Who. They're captured. He's captured with the Doctor in, in a story where they're fighting. Uh, the Sheriff of Nottingham is actually in league with some robots. Little John and Much the Miller, Much the Miller's son, are, are told, oh, God, Robin's been captured. So now they have to go and rescue him. And that's another absolute. That's always happening. Standard plot. They come across the monk and uh, the monk has a, has a servant and is heading off to, to see the king to say that Robin Hood has been captured. We now have uh, what happens next does not tend to feature, certainly in the children's books. Because <laughs> what, what happens is John, little John cuts off the monk's head. Right. Children would love that, though, I think, by and large. Just the parents who would, who would be moaning. And much the miller cuts off the little page's head. Okay, that's harsh. Yeah, that's, so the little boy yeah. dies as well. Okay. Little John and Much the Miller, they, they then take... It's Much the Miller's son, by the way. It's Much, not the, much Miller's the Miller's son. Yes, Much the yeah. Miller's son. Sorry, yes. So it's actually child on child um, yes. violence. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. Um, they, then, they then go off and, and bring the news to uh, the king. Yeah. So that, I mean, we're not told who the king is, but the fact that, you know, the king of England is a part of this story, that again the king is of England the is beginning. Not- the King of England is not in the Crusades or languishing in a German prison. No, no, it's just the King. They trick the King into thinking that um, the monk is still alive. And so the King gives them a reward. They then go to the Sheriff of Nottingham and again, trick the Sheriff of Nottingham into thinking that the monk is still alive and that they've come from the King. It's a fantastic the, story. That's... It's full of wiles and tricks and scams and it, much merriness. The, um, the Sheriff of Nottingham gives them a slap up meal with right. the best wine in his cellar. So they're in disguise in the heart of the, the castle in Nottingham. So yeah. that's, a, that's, again, absolute classic, isn't it? Yeah. And they then free Robin. And there it is. Um, so <laughs> It's a brilliant story. <laughs> yeah. So there it is. But I mean, that's quite a good story. Well, the thing that's interesting in, in that, as in these early, because there are a couple of other ballads, aren't there? There's the one that I mentioned, A Jest of Robin Hood. Uh, a Jest of Robin Hood. In those stories, they are tricksters. But they're not necessarily enormously. I mean, they're not benevolent figures at all, are they? I mean, cutting pages' heads off and yeah, they are. They are definitely outlaws. Well, there's, so there's another guy of Gisborne. He's also um, right from the beginning. So that's a, another early 15th century romance. And in that, Robin cuts off Guy's head, sticks right. sticks the head on the end of his bow, and mutilates his face with a knife. Oh, gosh. And then that's, there's another. Yeah. So, 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 so another. Also, another part of this swell. It's not just ballads. There are also plays that are being done. Mm-hmm. And one of the, early, the, the earliest script from a Robin Hood play comes from the Paston Letters that I think we've mentioned before, this collection of, of, yeah, of letters century. and documents um, from uh, landowners in, uh, in uh, East Anglia during the Wars of the Roses. And among the, all the kind of the collection of papers, there's a, a very short 21 line, 23 line, something like that, very short play. And in that, Robin cuts off the head and puts it in his hood. So there's a lot of beheading going on. Yeah. But, I mean, people, they weren't squeamish about such things in their, no, their stories, no. were they? But you, you mentioned the guest of Robin Hood. That's probably the key one because that's the one with loads of, of elements. Archery so it, contests. Um, archery contests, hostility to greedy clerics. So that's, you know, it seems right. to be a running theme. The king actually goes into the forest 
and he gets kind of kidnapped by Robin and his merry men and they give him food. So, And then it ends with uh, Robin's death at the hands of his cousin, the prioress of Kirkley. And we might come to that later on because it's part of that. that that's a particularly fascinating aspect of the story. So, th- so all those kind of elements are there. But I think elements that are not there... Yeah, let's talk because that they're really interesting about uh, when the, the point at which they come in. I think that's fascinating. Elements that are not there: robbing from the rich to give to the poor. Yeah, that is not really an element in any of of the surviving kind of medieval or Tudor. Well, do you know what? Do you know what I read about this? There's a there was a historian called um, J. C. Holt. Very keen on cricket, apparently, Tom. So should appeal to you. Who wrote a book about Robin Hood in the 1980s, and he suggests in one of his articles about Robin Hood that um, these plays that you mentioned were put on by sort of ecclesiastical authorities in the 16th century, and they would have and at the at the end the people playing Robin and the other characters would have collections for the church, and often it was really sort of impressed upon you. That you had to give. It was, it was, there was a lot of pressure. And that all this sort of stuff about taking from the rich and giving to the poor, there's a sort of hint that it was basically a massive wheeze to get to force, make people feel guilty and make them give money to the church at the end of the performance. Yeah. So I think it's going with the grain of the stories. So, um, the end of the guest, uh, it, it, it said that Robin did, um, he did poor men much good. So it's not saying he's taken from the rich to give to the poor, but he, you know, he's known as a friend of the poor. He's known as a friend of women. Yeah. Um, he, 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 there's that sense of a kind of chivalry there. Um, and there's a story in which in the guest, there is a poor knight who is down on his uppers, um, who's being kind of screwed out of his money by an evil band of monks in a monastery. And Robin comes to his rescue, robbing from the rich to give to the, um, distressed middle classes is not really, <laughs> I mean, that's effectively what that story is. Yeah. Well, so, he, the same historian, JC Holt, um, we had a lot of questions saying, "Is you know, is Robin a proto-socialist? Is he a Richard Brabner said, is he a precursor to socialism or paternalistic Toryism?" And and I would say at first the uh, the latter. More, I mean, obviously they're, they're ridiculously sort of anachronistic concepts to be imposing on this because the, the, I don't I don't think I don't get a sense from those early ballads or the early plays, particularly if they're being licensed by church authorities and used to drum up enthusiasm in collections. I don't get a sense that they're terribly subversive. Do you, Tom? Do you think these are undermining the social order or are they having fun? And I mean, the, they go out of their way, even though Robin and his mates are cutting pages' heads off. They're still, the ballads tell you that they're very courteous, don't they? I mean, that one that I read out at the beginning of the show said, you know, as, as courteous a man you'll never find or whatever yeah. words to that effect. So they're not threatening, are they? Well, this book came out a couple of years ago, uh, Story Worlds of Robin Hood um, by Leslie Coote, who's kind of one of the, the great living experts on Robin Hood. And she has an excellent theory about where Robin Hood comes from. And, but I think we should save looking at that for the second okay. half, because I think right. in the second half, we should look at, at where do these story, where where might these stories come from? You know, might there be a, a real Robin Hood? And if not, then where would the stories come from? I hope you will. I hope you'll 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 say that there is a real Robin Hood. Tom. Well, you have I'll to be wait very and disappointed. See. You'll have to wait and see. But um, there were a couple of elements that we haven't got onto. Um, so the robbing from the rich to give to the poor. Okay, we've done. What about Maid Marian? Where's Maid Marian come from? Let, let's park her for now. 
Maid, Maid Marian is a part of the kind of the May Day rituals that you get in the 16th century. She's not necessarily associated with Robin Hood. She's French, isn't she? There's an implication that that she belongs to a kind of different series of stories. Uh, the Maid Marian that we get, you know, as in films now, I mean, it's basically a 19th century invention. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think uh, in the 17th century, Robin has a wife called Clorinda, <laughs> which, <laughs> right. yeah. which is not something that's... Uh, no, it doesn't trip off the tongue. So, uh, but another, you know, a really fascinating example of perhaps of um, the way that uh, folk stories work in Britain is, of course, that he, beca- he Robin is a very upwardly mobile figure. So we mm-hmm. talked about how he's a yeoman and he ends up as a, you know, member of the aristocracy. Robert of Loxley or... Robert or, of Loxley, or, yes. all that, yeah. Um, and this is, um, this seems to be an invention of a, a, a Tudor playwright called Anthony Munday, who in the 1590s writes two apparently not very good plays. I haven't read them. Oh, yes. The Downfall of Robert, Earl of Huntingdon. Is that yeah. the play? And the death. I, I haven't seen it. And the death of uh, Robert, Earl of Huntingdon. Oh, um, right. And there's also there's a, there's a late 16th century biography which um, identifies him as coming from Loxley. And that then gets picked up by Sir Walter Scott in the beginning yeah. of the 19th century in Ivanhoe, which is probably, you know, the key fictional work that helps to to generate the myth and so this idea that robin is not actually a yeoman but that he is a dispossessed nobleman that he is earl of huntingdon or loxley or whatever it it seems to be something that gradually evolves over the course of uh but to go back to the point where that comes in so late 16th century so the myth or the legend the stories have been circulating we know for at least 150 200 years probably longer probably much longer there doesn't seem to be an obvious kind of ideological subtext to making him an aristocrat at this particular moment in time it's just a it's just a a riff on the story isn't it i mean there's no reason for somebody in elizabethan england to think oh we need an aristocratic hero rather than a yeoman don't you think tom one of one one of the things that's interesting uh, about the ballads the early the kind of medieval ones is that there's no reason is given why robin is an outlaw uh, and in fact there's a question from josh wilcox on the discord why was robin an outlaw we're never mm-hmm. told um in the early ballads the first person to mention why robin might be an outlaw is actually not english but scottish so there's a whole series of uh, weirdly of historians in scotland uh, again, writing in the 15th century. Well, they're the first non-fiction references. Yeah, so Robin they're referring Rally. to him as a kind of historical figure. Yeah. And one of them, who's writing a kind of mid-15th century, uh, a guy called um, Walter Bauer, posits the the idea that Robin had been uh, fighting with Simon de Montfort um, against the armies of, of Henry III and Prince Edward, who will go on to become Edward I. Right. And that um, you have the Battle of Evesham in which Simon de Montfort is killed and, of course, uh, brutally gelded. His corpse is mutilated. Um, and the idea, and um, Walter Bauer says, well, maybe Robin was, uh, you know, he was fighting there and he had to then flee into the, uh, into, into the woods. And that's then followed up by another Scot um, writing at the beginning of the 16th century, a guy called John Mayer or John Major. Oh, yeah, John Major. Our yeah. friend John Major, um, who... Uh, he is the first to suggest that uh, Robin had lived in the time of Richard the first, Richard the Lionheart. And he is the one who kind of casts him as again, of being a, a, an overtly um, aristocratic figure. And so I, I think there you get the kind of the germ of the idea that Robin has become an outlaw 
because he is facing evil times. Yeah. But he is on the side of the king. Because if you're trying to, in a way, make, make Robin safe, to make him someone that decent people can identify with, you have to give him a reason for being an outlaw that isn't to do with, yeah. you know, chopping off people's heads or mutilating them with knives or whatever. And so the idea that he is uh, a nobleman who has been, um, you know, unjustly persecuted by bad Prince John or something like that. I mean, that's ideal. It's absolutely ideal because he, he, He's on the side of the king, but he's he he also has a legitimate reason to be out in the greenwood. But that obviously comes in later on, doesn't it? So that's because all the twentieth century iterations or nineteenth century of Robin Hood, he's a, he's a nice fellow. He's a you know he's as you say he's not a criminal. But these early mentions of Robin Hood, I mean, they're generally talking about somebody who's perceived very much as a criminal, aren't they? So those early ballads are in the long tradition of ballads that actually slightly sort of celeb- that celebrate the kind of trickster figure, um, yeah. outwitting the authorities. But there's no sort of, I mean, there's no sense in, in those ballads that he's been unjustly accused, is he, there? He simply, there, there is no explanation given for why he's in the in the forest. Yeah. No explanation for give, is given at all. But maybe there's no, I mean, maybe people wouldn't have needed an explanation. Well, because especially if they're already familiar with the figure of, if he has a kind of place in the folk memory already, so everybody knows that Robin Hood is is merely an outlaw. And isn't there some suggestion that to be a Robin Hood in this sort of period, that this yeah. is that this is a kind of generic name that is yeah. given to people who are you're just a Robin Hood. Yeah. So this is all part of the swirl of of, of possible influences that might feed into the legend. And I think yeah. we should look at them in the in the second half. But looking at the way that the story evolves from the sixteenth century onwards, yeah. I think it's it's clear that a, a sense of why Robin is in the forest has been lost, or there is a feeling that some explanation needs to be provided as to why he's there. Yes. And the one that goes with the grain of acceptable opinion is that he is, uh, he, he, he's on the side of the rightful king. He is uh, a rebel against unjust oppression. Yeah. He's probably of aristocratic background. And that's why, the idea of him as um, someone in the, the reign of Richard the Lionheart with bad Prince John as the regent, that's why it kind of, it, it, it suits it perfectly because it provides the absolutely kind of perfect context. So by, the, let's say, the, the 17th I mean, so Shakespeare mentions Robin Hood, doesn't he? Yeah, um, and, and, and you like it. And Two Gentlemen of Verona as well, yeah. I think. But but that's just a sort of reference to, oh, Robin in the Greenwood. They're kind of passing references, aren't they? But then there's a... He sort of goes quiet, doesn't he, Robin Hood, in the seventeenth, seventeenth, eighteenth century? Would you say? Well, you have the, you have this um, at the end of the eighteenth century. You have oh, this yes. guy called Joseph Ritson. Now he's who, he's a very interesting man, I think. Yes, yeah, so he's he he's he's very annoyed by the idea that Robin might be of aristocratic background because Joseph Ritson is is very much on the left. He's a great, you know, he's a great enthusiast for the French Revolution, Tom Paine, all that kind of stuff. He's also Tom. Shall I tell you something about Joseph Ritson? Yeah, tell me. Um, he has something in common with you or something that you flirted with. Do you want to guess? Uh, no, I can't think. So you had a period where you flirted with vegetarianism well, under, yeah, under yeah. domestic pressure. Have you have you about formally abandoned that? Or I, I, Basically, I'm vegetarian. Okay. So he, like you, was a vegetarian, but he largely seemed to eat muffins and cakes. <laughs> Did he? Dunking yeah. donuts. And do you know what happened? He went mad. He ended his days in a I thought you were going to say he got sun. enormously fat. 
Well, maybe he did that, that too. I don't know. But yes, he was a great enthusiast for the French Revolution. So he brings together all the ballads for the first yeah. time. But he also th- clearly thinks that Robin Hood was real. Yeah. And he he sees him as a sort of proto-Jacobin, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, so I mean. he celebrates him as a subversive, as a, as a radical. Yeah. Uh, absolutely, robbing from the rich to give to the poor. And then the weird thing is that Walter Scott, who absolutely is not a subversive or a radical, he's great. He's basically Joseph Ritson's only friend. <laughs> um, maybe because Ritson keeps serving muffins to other people. I don't know. <laughs> yes. Anyway, oh, no, not muffins again. Anyway, Walter Scott apparently gets some of the ideas for Ivanhoe from his friends from the Robin Hood story in Ritson. I mean, I think you can see that Ritson's collect, you know, he, he assembles all these ballads and it has a huge influence on all the kind of poets and novelists of the time. So Ivanhoe is the classic one. And that brings in famously the sp- not just an archery contest, but splitting the arrow. So, oh, yes. You yeah. know, the arrow hits the middle of the bull, and then Robin steps forward and splits the arrow that's hit the bull. So that's a famous part of the myth. But the other famous thing that Walter Scott introduces is the idea of uh, a rivalry between Anglo-Saxons and Normans. Yes. Yeah. So I think that we have would a go question down well with on the, that. Uh... Yeah, so, so Crowfoot, very much a friend of the show, how much of the legend and how much of the reality centred around the notion of the Anglo-Saxons rebelling against the Norman yoke, that is not in any way a part of any medieval <laughs> no because surely the medieval 15th century or indeed a couple of centuries earlier they would have i mean that's just ancient history to them isn't it they, yeah i mean they just, don't have a sense of that at all no but, of course but it's not. very important to scots um, well because people have rediscovered the idea of the anglo-saxons partly because of the norman yoke yeah they're obviously writing in the aftermath yeah. of the 17th century and everybody cared about the norman yoke and um and that's i mean i remember reading ivanhoe when i was i don't know 12 or 13 or something and I found that stuff about Saxons and Normans immensely persuasive. And- <laughs> well, it's also, it's, um, I mean, it's in the, uh, the Errol Flynn Robin Hood. Yes, it is. You know, the yeah. famous line, it's not injustice. I, it's injustice I hate, not the Normans. <laughs> <laughs> but also the other, just in the, uh, the kind of, say, the romantic period, the, the period of Walter Scott in the aftermath of Ritson's discoveries, the other big innovation that has a kind of momentous afterlife is a, a novel about Maid Marian written by Thomas Love Peacock, who was a friend of Shelley's and wrote satirical novels that mm-hmm. are actually quite funny if you know about the period, but right. otherwise, but I mean, absolutely nothing. <laughs> so so this, so his novel about Robin Hood is quite hard to read because it's full of kind of in-jokes about politicians that nobody's heard of. Um, but he introduces the idea of the love triangle between Robin Hood, Sheriff of Nottingham, and... Oh, the Sheriff of Nottingham is involved in a love triangle with... Yeah. Oh, because of course and he wants Marian. to... Ma- yeah, it's only a love triangle in the sense that the sheriff of Nottingham wants Marion's money, doesn't he? Isn't that the the usual the usual claim in the twentieth century that she's an heiress or something? Or yes, that's usually how it's factored in. And maybe I'm just thinking of Alan Rickman kind of lusting <laughs> yeah. after yes. Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio, was it? I... That's right. Yes, <laughs> threatening to open you up know, people's hearts with spoons. You know, apparently that film had to be re-edited, um, and the director was removed from the edit because Alan Rickman was too prominent and he was threatening Kevin Costner's ego. Yes. Well it's like it's like he's in a completely different film, isn't it? Yeah, it is. He's brilliant in it. I remember this I remember you know it's one of those performances that just kind of leapt off the screen. <laughs> yes. Anyway, we um we should stop talking about Alan Rickman and talk more about uh, the history of Robin Hood. So so Maid Marian has definitely entered the story by yeah. the early Victorian period. Yeah. And we've also got I mean one other character we haven't massively talked about. Um Friar Tuck has also entered the story. And he's a, he's a real person, isn't he, Friar Tuck? 
Yeah. So he's 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 there from the beginning, but he seems to he was um a priest from Sussex, I think. Um, who was around in the early 15th century, and then he he enters the story. Yes, he comes in in 1475. Um, but but he had he he <laughs> he's called Robert Stafford, and he gathered around him. It says in the um, uh, says J C Holt, a band of evil doers who committed murders and robberies and threatened the peace of Surrey and Sussex. <laughs> so he's very much a. <laughs> He's a he's a Surrey and Sussex man. He's not a he's not a yeah. Yorkshireman or a, a man of Nottinghamshire, but um, but he just gets kind of woven into the yeah into the story. But as Friar Tuck, he's disguised as Friar Tuck, and then interestingly, he so he must have been quite a malevolent figure at first if he's a real life criminal. Yeah. But obviously, by the certainly by the twentieth century, Friar Tuck is comic relief, really, isn't he? Well, but also, of course, um, if he gets if he gets back projected to the time of Richard the Lionheart, there were no friars at that point. Why they're not? So he's in Why a, were there no friars? Because you know it's it's before friaring was invented before, before Saint Francis. And I don't know anything about friars, Tom. To be honest with you, I know this. You'll say they found this absolutely a shameful moment in the history of the podcast. I don't really know the difference between a monk and a friar. Well, a friar is um, itinerant. Okay, uh, monks are uh, generally monasteries. Okay, well, they, now I know. Now I th- yeah. So so. Um, the friars who are itinerant become yeah. Robin's allies. Yeah. The monks who are resident. Greedy. Greedy. Kind of, yeah. That, so that's how, that's how it works. Basically, by the beginning of the 19th century, I think you've got all the elements in place. Yeah. And there's one more sort of iteration, isn't there, that's really important, which is, so actually all the, what's really interesting, all these stories up to this point, they're never for children. I mean, children might enjoy them, but they, but they're not written for children. And then there's an American writer who I think is, I mean, he's not as well known as Walter Scott, but arguably equally as important, certainly in, in the transition to America and to cinema, who is a guy called Howard Pyle. So I think we actually have some of Howard Pyle's children's books in our house because they're still being, they've never been out of print. Um, and his version of, he's a man from Delaware, and his version of Robin Hood, he published in 1883 when he was 30. Um, and he did illustrations himself. So he also, interestingly, he also created the he's – he's a very influential illustrator because he created the illustrations for pirate stories that established the template for a pirate. So um, – and he he does these beautiful illustrations. You know, Robin is in kind of Lincoln Green or whatever. And the feather in the hat. The feathers in the hat, yeah. all of this sort of stuff. He also invents the dialect that is the kind of faux medieval dialect. <laughs> yeah. So cool. thou wilt, you know, all this <laughs> yeah. sort of stuff. Yeah. But also there's an enormous amount of merriness, isn't there? Yeah, merriness. Everyone is inordinately merry. And philanthropy. That it's just kind of larks. It's, yeah. They're, they're about going around having romps. Nobody ever has their head cut off in no. these, these <laughs> There's stories. no mutilations or and anything I think like that. The success of Howard Pyle's version. So the tremendous success that had, I guess, with children in the 1880s, 1890s, probably explains why Hollywood come to... Absolutely, um, it does. Because, because, without, because without Pyle, Robin would not, would not have the resonance in the US. No. He, so we talked in our 1922 podcast that, um, about Douglas Fairbanks's silent yeah. version of Robin Hood that in, later inspires Errol Flynn's version. In Douglas Fairbanks's version, that's the first film to have a Hollywood premiere. And I, and I think both that and the um, Errol Flynn version enormously successful very big budget you know robin hood is a hot pro- hot intellectual mm-hmm. kind of commercial property in early 20th century in america and then one final twist on that theme 
is that The Adventures of Robin Hood, which becomes a, a kind of massive TV series uh, in Britain and yeah. features Sid James. Sid James in The Sid Adventures. James was in it. Leslie Phillips was in it. Jane Asher was in it. Uh, Steptoe and Son. You know, Wilfred Bramble and yeah. thingy. They they, yeah. they were they they were so so absolutely chock a block full of British character actors. But but the script for that was written by uh Americans who had fled the US because they, they were victims oh, of, yes, of McCarthyism. Of course it was, yes. And in fact in some there's at least one school district in America where there was talk of banning stories of Robin Hood because they were seen as too communist, robbing from the rich and giving to the poor. Should we Would sing the song to see us out? I, th- I, think, I think I think you should you can I, well, sing it. So I think I think that because um, I've done my ballad for today, Tom. <laughs> I think that we should end on this note, and then when we come back, we should ask the question: Did Robin Hood really exist? The real, or where, Robin where Hood. does the story come from? The mystery is solved at last. We're very good at solving <laughs> mysteries. What was the last mystery we solved? The princess in uh, the tower. Princess in the tower, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. So on, so sing a song, Tom. Okay. Robin Hood, Robin Hood, riding through the glen. Robin Hood, Robin Hood, with his band of men, robs from the rich. Gives to the poor. No, it's not that, is it? It's uh, feared by the bad. No, uh, what is it? Feared by the bad. <laughs> Loved by the good. Robin Hood. Robin Hood. Robin Hood. That started too well, and I thought it wasn't going to be funny. But then <laughs> when it degenerated when you forgot <laughs> well, the words, it was very enjoyable. I think my right. version was better. We will see you after the break uh, for more Robin Hood. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me, so I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is History. Tom Holland didn't sing us in after the break, <laughs> which I think we can all agree was just as well. But Tom, we are I now going do another to... So- I could do another song. No, don't. Well, I mean, maybe at the end. 
Maybe right. the end or yes, a poem, right. if you have a poem. I do have a poem. Oh, have a poem. it's exciting. So we have discussed in the first half how the legend began with, with ballads and then went through various iterations. It's actually a much more complicated story even than the one we've told, isn't it? With There's so much more stuff about ballads and folk stories and all this sort of stuff that we haven't had time to do. But let's now talk about historical reality. So, Tom... Um, we had a question from Aurelius and one of our members, one of, uh, one of the Rest is History Club members on our Discord chat channel, which you can all sign up to if you go to restishistorypod.com. Brilliantly and, done. Robbing uh, from the rich to give to the ro- poor. Exactly. Um, now, Aurelius says, did Robin Hood really exist? What's the answer? So essentially, there are three answers to the question of what, where does Robin Hood come from? Oh, that's, this is disappointingly elusive. There's... there's He's entirely fictional, product of ballads and literary traditions. Yeah. Or there's a real Robin Hood who actually existed. Or a theory that was very, very popular in the the mid-20th century. He's the expression of some kind of ancient pagan figure, the green man or something like that. So that's the idea that's picked up on, and something we didn't mention at all in the first half, which is the 1980s TV series Robin of Sherwood, which people in my general... Robin, the hooded man... Thanks for that, Tom. That was clad. That was really enjoyable. <laughs> in that version, he is commissioned by Hearn the Hunter. That's right. To in be the, a sort of champion yes. for the for the for Deep England or something. So uh, that that was pushed by Margaret Murray, who has cropped up occasionally on this podcast. She was an Egyptologist. Terrible theories. So she was the one who who argued that witches were secret pagans and all that kind of yeah. stuff. And she argued that Robin Hood is a, is the image of the devil. His hood is in some way associated with horns. And this is Balderdash, isn't it, basically? Uh, but, but actually, the person who originally comes up with this series, Jacob Grimm, as in the Brothers Grimm, who suggests that the name of Robin Hood comes from Woden. Right. That's not uh, right either. No, it's not right. So that, so I think we can basically park that theory. I don't think well, that's, just, that, that, that's I don't think we can park true. it. I think we should just throw it in the gutter and trample it. <laughs> trample <death>. on it. <laughs> yeah. Jump on it. Yes. Set it on fire. So that leaves two possibilities. that There's a real Robin Hood, or he is the product of, of literary traditions or i suppose the third one that he's a fusion of two of, of both those so as we said the the earliest mention of robin hood as robin hood you know an outlaw who who is the hero of verse ballads is in this poem piers plowman fast middle english epic written Date? in the 1370s in that the way that he's described it's clear that his legends are, are very very popular and that lots of people know him yeah and Langland, as we said, is writing in the West Midlands. So, you know, that's kind of evidence that you know, his stories are known in that part of England, certainly yeah. um, in, in the, the mid 14th century. Um, so presumably you can, at the very least, push it back several generations, probably to the beginning of the 14th century. But how much further back than that can you go? And as you said in the first part, there is evidence that the name Robin Hood is being used as a kind of generic name for, for outlaws and so th- there's an example of this from berkshire in the 1260s oh, yes i've seen this yeah that in- again must imply that the origins of this are earlier because so this all, is all the earliest references are to, to robin being either in sherwood or yorkshire so this is a man who his name was uh william he was the son of somebody called robert lefebvre robert the smith and uh he was part of a gang and he was there was a penalty imposed or, or something there was his chattels were meant to have been seized the entry in the 
sort of the King's Remembrances Memoranda role. I don't actually know what that is. But anyway, <laughs> the entry, whoever wrote it, wrote him down as William Robert Hood. Yeah. But Robert Hood not being his name, but being a sort of yeah. just an what outlaw. kind of a person he was. Yeah. So there is a guy, a man called Robin Hodd, who in the York Assizes of 1225-6 to 6 is described as a fugitivus, so Latin for outlaw. So that is the only example we have of someone called Robert Robin Hood, right. who appears in a legal record who is described as an outlaw. One of the things that's happened since the 19th century is that people have gone through all the medieval records, the court rolls and the assizes and all that kind of stuff, looking for people called Robin Hood. A popular candidate is a guy called Robert Hood who appears in the court rolls of Wakefield in 1316, 1317. Oh, yes. yeah. Edward II is in the north around that region in 1323. We're told in the guest that the name of the king is Edward. So not Richard, it's Edward. You know, but this is pretty kind of desperate stuff, really. But there's also a man, have you not seen this man called uh, Robert of Weatherby? Have we talked about him? So he was captured in 1225. His body suspended in, in chains by the Sheriff of Yorkshire. It's a sort of right place-ish. He's the right kind of... He's called yeah, Robert. and there's a guy called Robert Godbird who um, served under Simon de Montfort at Evesham. That, that is quite an early tradition who becomes an outlaw. So these are all kind of figures that are lurking around, but none of them really fit. What you do definitely have is very ancient traditions of stories about outlaws seem to be quite popular. So you've got Herod the Wake would be a classic. So a lot of people asked about similar... So Herod the Wake's descendant, Tom... It's a listener to The Rest is History. Yes, you, you mentioned I told that. you, I've mentioned yeah, him before, because yeah, yeah. he was, that family was also involved yeah. in murdering the princes in the tower. He raised an eyebrow, I think it's fair to say, at me when I saw him after that podcast, and he thought his family had been greatly traduced. Anyway, Herod the Wake was a tremendous fellow, wasn't he? Because he was a Saxon holding out against the Normans. Yeah. Or, or was he? Are you going to tell of. me that's... Yeah, no, no, no I, think that's, no, I think that's true. Yes, there's a tradition, isn't there? And it's not just in England, so... no. You know, lots of countries have them of sort of bandit, outlaw, kind of hero of the Commonwealth against the sort of the powerful. And and do you think Robin Hood is is just part of that general sort of European tradition, the trickster hero, that kind of? I think the idea of outlaws as heroes is is definitely it's there with Hero of the Wake. It's there with a group of brothers called the Folvilles. The Folvilles. Who, the Folvilles, um, yeah. who are kind of basically delinquent members of the gentry who take to the take to the woods um and who again langland mentions right who are essentially seen as being more honest than the, the law enforcement agents so that's a kind of you know i mean that's a, a kind of key part of the appeal yeah william tell obviously in switzerland so yeah so there are lots of examples of this across medieval europe i mean i don't think that there is a smoking gun among any of these candidates I think there's just a sense of this being a kind of popular tradition and that Robin Hood, for whatever reason, comes to be the generic name that is applied to the figure of outlaws. So that then begs the question of how and why and when do these stories start to take the form that they do and when do they start to be you know, spoken and repeated and elaborated on? And I think the answer to that is focused on the fact that these stories are in English. The tradition of these stories, of people going out into woods, of people having adventures, this is a French courtly tradition. So the stories of King Arthur's knights, all that kind of stuff, but not yep. just King Arthur's knights. There are traditions of, you know, Fablo and uh, all kinds of things like that, that are French. So English is not a language in which these are being reproduced at court or anything like that. What is the moment when this might change? 
And Leslie Coote, who's written this this fantastic book, came out a couple of years ago. Yeah. She suggests that the obvious moment is in the reign of Edward I, who is fighting the French. He doesn't have lands on France anymore, and he's fighting the Welsh, and he's fighting the Scots. And he wants to emphasise Englishness and the role of English, and that he could speak English, that perhaps this is the point where... French traditions start to be transliterated into English. And perhaps that is the moment. She also has a further fascinating thesis as to who Robin might be, and in particular, why he's in the wood and who his true lord might be. Oh, Tom, this is so exciting. And why he might be an outlaw. So we talked about Maid Marian, and I was kind of rather mysterious about where she might come from and yeah. and, and block down your inquiries about you that. I don't think you were mysterious. You were just rude. <laughs> I was rude. <laughs> What's another word for maid in the in the sense that it's used with Maid Marian? Oh, God almighty, you've turned it back to Christianity. Unbelievable. You're going to say Maid Marian is the Virgin Mary. Are you? I am. Yes, I am. It's textbook Tom Holland, this. <laughs> I'm, I'm so excited about this. I've been saving it up. <laughs> Delayed gratification. Go on. <laughs> so... This, again, is a French tradition. Uh, They're called pastorelles. And this is a tradition of a shepherdess called Marion. And she has a lover or servant called Robin. Robin. It is clear that this is a kind of a metaphor for uh, the relationship of the individual Christian and his relationship to the Virgin Mary. The theory of Leslie Coote is that essentially this is the ultimate origin for the stories of Robin Hood. The reason that he is an outlaw is that his lord is the Virgin Mary. And the Virgin Mary in these stories is basically a kind of trickster. Leslie Coote describes her in in these popular tales as being tough, legalistic, sly, loud, practical, realistic, even apparently amoral and vengeful at times. Robin Hood serves a very unruly, dangerous female lord. And if you think of that story, Robin Hood and the Monk, the very earliest one, the whole plot revolves around him going into town to attend mass to pay his devotions to the Mary. Uh, and she says, Robin Hood is neither a freedom fighter nor a social bandit, ways in which he's frequently interpreted today. Robin is just a servant. It is his Lord, the Virgin Mary, who is potentially dangerous in a socio-political sense. Mary is the Lord of a great household whose seat lies in or possibly just beyond the forest. Hold on. Mary is the Lord. I mean, all that, that's all a bit weird, isn't it? It is I mean, weird. Is that, a, is that a common motif in medieval tales that the Virgin Mary is actually a a noble woman or man living in a big manor or something. All the early stories make it clear that Robin's devotion is to the Virgin. The reason why they don't give a backstory for him, he just is in the Greenwood because he is the servant of the Virgin Mary. That's the thesis. And of course, what makes this occluded is the Reformation because with the Reformation, this goes out of the window. And essentially the logic as to why Robin is in the Greenwood the reason why he is particularly devoted to the Virgin. Now, that has to be erased. But why isn't that in those ballads then, before the Reformation, the late 15th century ballads? That's pre-Reformation. Monk, a great deal of villainy there. from monks. It is there. But the Virgin Mary isn't there in the jest, is she? I mean, she's not... Yes. Or at least whole, not explicitly. Of, yeah, she, she, Robin, Robin's devotion is to the Virgin in all these stories. It's the kind of running theme that, of mm. course, we tend not to notice because, you know, we just kind of see it as medieval window dressing. Yeah. I think it is kind of interesting that if you think about the role that Robin Hood plays in kind of the imagination, there's a a deep vein of nostalgia there. Definitely. I mean, he kind of embodies Merry England. Merry England, exactly. You know, 
feasting on the ve- on venison and yeah. you know merriness and woha <laughs> and all that kind of stuff and there is a sense i think in which robin becomes the enemy of protestant preachers and well, one of the reasons why he starts to be phased out is because the association with the Virgin makes him awkward for Protestants to start to integrate into their idea. And this also the association of him with these kind of May Day festivities. Yeah. These are seen as kind of you know, Ungodly. pagan yeah. and, and, and papist and all kinds of things. Basically, over the course of the 16th century, he becomes out of fashion. He, he becomes, you know, and this is where he starts to become kind of a bit de classe. Uh, he becomes associated with lower classes, with the uneducated. And that's um, when he's the kind of backwards men. Reinvented at the end of the 16th century as, uh, as a nobleman. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, Tom, how does that thesis of yours, or indeed Leslie Coote's, how does that fit in with this stuff about Edward I? So there, there are these French stories of him and Marion, Marion being the Virgin Mary. Why do they kick? Why do they become so deep rooted in the reign of Edward the First when we're fighting the French? He is encouraging the transliteration of these various genres and verse styles into, into English. English. So he's trying to anglicise what are very popular. Yeah, and so if they're in English, then they can start to be you know repeated in pubs. So that right. by the late 14th century, people in pubs are familiar with them. So when the stories first start, they're not being repeated in pubs. Is that the claim? That they are, are they more, more at market than that? Yeah. So th- these are courtly traditions because they're in French. So, you know, it's only the upper classes who, who would be familiar with them. So Robin Hood is actually fictional. You're actually, so you've actually gone back on your previous. So you, you think deep down he's a, he's a literary construct. He's a French literary construct. Is that right? I think he's a literary construct who blends with a popular enthusiasm for outlaws. So I think he's, yeah, he's a kind of Anglo-French <laughs> invention, if you like. Is that a sort of French laugh? I, I thought yeah. you were going to do <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, so, so all these questions that we've got from listeners, you know, was he a Yorkshireman? Was he this? Was he that? Was he a, really a murderous brigand? Was he... You would say all these questions are completely beside the point because actually there is no, there is no, you know. Well, I don't think they're beside the point. I don't think they're beside the point because I think that all these questions are kind of battening onto the fact that there is an inherent fascination about the figure. The questions that you ask tend to generate further traditions. One other book that I read in preparation for this is an absolutely brilliant, brilliant example of this. I commend it to you, Dominic, and I commend it to all the listeners. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a book by uh, Kai Roberts, who, judging by his Twitter photo, is very much not a Norman. He's a, right. a kind of jolly yeoman. Yeah. Uh, and it's called Grave Concerns, The Follies and Folklore of Robin Hood's Final Resting Place. And this is focused on the idea of the, the story of Robin's death, which doesn't tend to feature very often in the film. So there is the Sean Connery one that does focus on on his death. And the story, in fact, it's first mentioned in The Guest. So very early, it describes how he was tricked by means of a wicked woman, the prioress of Kirklees. So Kirklees is an actual place, a nunnery in the Yorkshire side of the Pennines, that was his close kin for the love of a knight, Sir Roger of Doncaster, who was her lover. <laughs> May evil befall them both. They conspired together, Robin Hood to slay, and how they might best do that deed, his murderers to be. Then up spoke good Robin in the place where he stood. Tomorrow I must go to Kirklees to to be skillfully let blood. So Roger of Doncaster by the prioress he lay, and there they betrayed good Robin Hood through their false play. So that's the story of him going, being bled by his by his cousin, and Robin yeah. thinks he's going to be cured, and she is in it, and blood pours away. And in further elaborations of the story, Robin blows on his horn, little John comes, he wants to burn down the, the priory and slaughter all the nuns, and Robin <laughs> persuades him not to do that. Um, <laughs> but he reaches for his bow and fires the arrow, and that is where Robin is buried. And, and there he- is a stone... 
yeah. in Kirkley's, uh, in the grounds of Kirkley's Priory that is clearly very ancient. And w- with the dissolution of the monasteries, this stone becomes a kind of centre place of ornamental gardens and follies and so on. In fact, Stanley Baldwin gives a talk. Very much a in, friend of the rest of history. Yes, in, 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 in the grounds. I've actually looked up that talk, Tom. Um, Is it I good? looked at the text. It wasn't as Robin Hood themed as I'd hoped. Oh, that's um, a shame. That's it a was shame. mainly about um, the empire and um, the importance of sound money. So great themes, but but not relevant to this conversation. <laughs> Kai Roberts gives a brilliant account of this. I mean, he makes all this stuff incredibly interesting, the way in which these traditions have kind of gradually kind of accumulated over the over the centuries, the way that they've been questioned, the way that they've been revised, the way that they grow. The best bit of all is that in the in the 1980s and 1990s, Robin Hood's this stone that supposedly marks the grave of Robin Hood is in private land. The estate is owned by the family that got hold of it in the 17th century. So it is not accessible. And a pressure group grew up in Yorkshire saying we should have access to it. Yeah. And the um, the owner of the estate refused to let them come in. And there's kind of inc- increasingly bad blood between them. And I use the word blood advisedly because in the end, they ended up getting as their president, someone who had been involved in the 70s in Highgate Cemetery, arguing that Highgate Cemetery had, was haunted by a vampire. And he was terribly interested in it because of this idea of the prioress bleeding Robin Hood. Oh no! And so he came up with the thesis that, um, that the prioress <laughs> was actually a vampire and had turned Robin into a vampire, and that they were haunting the grounds of uh, of this estate. They kind of broke in and went to the site of the grave and <laughs> kind of saw the prioress. I will read the description of it. A woman, her eyes dark mad, set in her pale face like a bat, her black nun's robes flapping eerily while her eyes flashed red and venomous, her teeth bared sharp and white between snarling blood-red lips. Hold on, this was in the 1980s? Yeah. The prioress was still going. The prioress is still out there, apparently. And as presumably must Robin Hood be if he's a vampire as well. But it's a kind of brilliant example of the way in which these traditions are still kind of generating new traditions. Yeah, I was thinking while you were talking about a new tradition that Robin Hood has generated, Tom, one that's very close to your heart, as listeners may remember. So Robin Hood is a man who has two identities. He dresses up in an outfit. He hangs out with other people who are dressing up in outfits who are have two identities. So he's basically a superhero, isn't he? He's the ancestor. He is, in a way. he is the ancestor of Spider Man. I suppose he is. Yeah, that's a nice thought. I'll tell you who he's also the ancestor of that. I I started laughing while you were talking. I had completely blanked from my mind that I once wrote a two thousand word essay for a very popular newspaper comparing the lives of Robin Hood and Raoul Moat. Oh, Moti. Moti. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I do remember Moti. So he was an example. Now, this will mean nothing to our overseas listeners. There's no point even trying to explain it. But Raoul Moti, if you remember when he was hiding out in some, he was hiding out in the ward or something, wasn't he? And Gaza visited him with some chicken and a fishing yeah. rod. Yeah, that's right. That You could see how that could easily become a folk ballad in and of itself, couldn't it? <laughs> and people, this obscure writer, Dominic Sandbrick. Yeah, right. Writing exactly. for. Was there a real Raoul Moat? Ye Daily Mail. <laughs> yeah, anyway. Did this man really exist? <laughs> right. Did any of them really exist? <laughs> Who knows? So we haven't really solved. I thought I we, we would have. solve the mystery. I think we have. Well, I mean, I, I find your solution or the solution that he's actually a French <laughs> you don't like that. literary formula. I don't <laughs> like that at all. I, I, I feel that I've been cheated. <laughs> I thought you were going to, you know, you have found some butcher in Barnsley in, you know, well, 1215 or something that was well, definitely. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Well, he's a vampire. He might be a vampire. Yeah, that's exactly. I mean, that's quite good. Um, Can I end with a poem? I think it would be entirely in keeping with the spirit of this podcast if you did. Okay, so this is written by my friend Nicholas Hogg, uh, and he's a very good poet and a very good cricketer, so I know him. And it's called Longbow. First we climbed the fence into the garden centre, a barbed wire castle before stealing six-foot lengths of cane and wading through the brook to the college road bridge, where we'd set them tight with an island string and flex them into bows, strumming an instrument of violence and war, once favoured by Stone Age nomads, Japanese horsemen and Robin Hood, who wore Lincoln green on ITV. When the bow was sprung, we fletched arrows with dart flights and pigeon feathers before shaving down the points with penknives, needle-sharp splinter ends that could draw blood from fingertips or stand proud in the eye of a king. Then we stalked the woods for rabbits, burying the shaft deep in a time-travelling Norman, falling from a battlement. Note the pierced armour as he paddles the air, the flight like a brooch pinned to his heart. It's good, isn't it? It's very good. Yeah, it's yeah. A perfect way in which to end. Okay. The tradition lives on. Yeah, I, I think the tradition lives on. I don't think we've really solved the mystery, and nor have we really grappled with all the complexities of Robin Hood, because it's a subject that could take hours of podcasting. He's a vampire. We've solved it. But we have more than exceeded our time, so we will see. Yeah, we're see. not Dan Carlin, so we can't. No, exactly. <laughs> so on that bombshell, we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.